Good morning, everybody. I'm Wendy. Um, together with my husband and family, we've been coming here for about 20 years now. Um, so this morning, we're actually going to be reading somebody else's mail. This somebody else is not one person. It's actually the whole church of Corinth. Uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. And actually, I think that if I was part of the Corinthians church, I would be at two minds as to other people reading this letter, this mail that they received. Firstly, I'd be a bit embarrassed, mortified even, um, that our dirty laundry was being hung out for everybody else to see. You see, the Corinthian church had some really big problems, and it's all a really a bit embarrassing, to say the least. In fact, Paul calls them immature twice. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And then in 14, verse 20, he says, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. On the other hand, as well as calling them children, Paul has some great things to say to them about how God saw them. And we'll look at this as we go through. Paul's letter to the Corinthians tells a story. It is a story of a church that Paul himself had planted. It's a story of a church that was struggling. They had questions. How do they live as God's people, as God's church in Corinth? You see, Corinth is a long way from Jerusalem. A long way from the place where Jesus lived. It's a long way from where the first church started. And they're struggling to bridge this gap as to how they live as Christians in this pagan city. How were they to bridge the cultural gap between Jesus' world and teachings and their world? The church in Corinth has become infamous for its struggle with this and the problems that they had. In Acts 18, we read the story of Paul's mission to Corinth. He had just come from Athens, where he had had some success. In Corinth, he met the power couple Priscilla and Aquila. They had been expelled from Rome. They were already Christians, but they hadn't been expelled from Rome because they were Christians. They had been expelled because Aquila was a Jew. There had been some riots in Rome, and the Jews were blamed, and Claudius solved the problem by expelling all Jews. And there was a number of years Jews weren't allowed in, in Rome. So Paul meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, and together they start an outreach into Corinth, while at the same time making tents. They are all tent makers. Aquila and Priscilla, um, as I said, were already Christians, and some theologians even think that it was Priscilla who wrote Hebrews. They are a big part of the Corinthian story as well. And then when Silas and Timothy joined them, Paul goes full-time. 
And as this was his normal practice, he went to the Jews first, um, and on a whole, and on a whole, they sort of they rejected the message. So he goes to the Gentiles. He spends about one and a half years in Corinth, teaching and preaching, um, and a church forms there. And then he leaves for Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla, and they 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 move the ministry there leaving the church in Corinth. Um, And then Apollos, in in Ephesus, Apollos appears on the scene. Um, And he is described as a learned Jew with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, a believer in Jesus from Alexandria in Egypt. Um, Just a side note, Alexandria becomes one of the great centers of Christianity very early on. Apollos has a gift, and his gift is that he is a fervent and skilled teacher. He is really brilliant at public speaking, and this is something that the Corinthians love. They love people that can get up and and speak really well. But he has um, an incomplete understanding of Jesus, and it's Aquila and Priscilla that teach him more about God's way and teach him more accurately. Uh, The first city of Corinth was actually um, demolished by the Romans about 150 years before Jesus. It was completely obliterated. Um, And then about 50 50 years before Jesus, it was rebuilt as a Roman colony uh, by Julius Caesar. And it was particularly rebuilt for freed slaves. Uh, So it was a place of opportunity that weren't that wasn't available in other places. And so the Corinthians were very concerned with freedom. So although it's located in Greece, it's actually dominated by Roman culture. It was also an important trade city. Um, It's positioned on what almost looks like an island, but there's that a little, little bridge of land that goes between um, where Corinth is and Athens and the rest of Greece. So it was quite treacherous to sail around that big bulge there, and so what they used to do is they used to pull the ships. There we go, sorry, there's the Corinth. And what they used to do was pull small ships across the six to eight kilometer journey across so that they didn't have to go right around through the treacherous waters. And if they were larger ships, they used to unload everything, move it across to the other side, and then reload up. So it was a great trading center. So living in Corinth, we have um, freed slaves, Um, and they probably owned slaves themselves. And in fact, in that culture, slaves actually often owned slaves. So there's several levels there. Um, And we have traders. In the city of Corinth itself, um, we know from the different names that are used and um, in both Acts and in Corinthians, Um, that they were quite a diverse group of people. They were both Jew and Gentile, Romans and Greek. Some were born free, 
Some were freed slaves, no longer slaves, freed men, and some were slaves. Some were educated, some were uneducated, and we know that there was rich people, and we know that there was poor people. The church, of course, was made up also of men and women. Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters. Now, you may have noticed in your Bible in recent years, um, the texts have changed from saying just brothers to brothers and sisters. Uh, This is not a concession to being gender inclusive, um, a change to make the Bible more PC, but it actually recognises that the word Adelphi, Adelphoi, um, when it's used in the plural, is actually is gender inclusive, and it is catch-all for everybody. So therefore, this change to brothers and sisters is actually a commitment to being more accurate to the Greek. Now, Paul had heard some reports of what was happening in Corinth, and in, di- in addition to some from the in addition from some from the Corinthian church had written to them, to him asking questions. So in Corinthians, we see Paul both answering the reports that he's heard and the questions that they have written to him. One of the revelations I had at Bible College was around the word you. Um, You is often seen as addressing me uh, when we read scriptures. Um, But it's one of the great... um, tragedies of the English language is that you can either be singular or plural. Um, There is no distinction, but in the Greek there is a distinction. And here in Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the you plural. He's He's not speaking to individuals. Occasionally he addresses individuals, but on a whole he is speaking to you, the church. You all, maybe, you might say. So, the Corinthians, they had five big issues, five big issues that Paul addresses when he talks to them. The first problem is one of division. Some of the church were claiming to follow Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas, otherwise known as Peter. And in Corinth, rhetoric was a source of status. Being able to speak well um, made you more popular and more recognized. So speaking publicly was highly prized. And we, always, we already know from Apollos that he was a great public speaker. And some were following Apollos. Some were following Peter. Now, well, he makes some pretty good speeches in Acts. But Paul argues that the cross overturns worldly power and status. It's the cross that is the power of God. He said God is central, not the people. Paul is trying to reshape the thinking of the Corinthians. They are now part of God's people. It is what God has done on the cross, not what they have done. And by following people, they were being like children. Paul reminds them that they have a new identity as God's um, temple, and it's God's spirit dwells in their midst. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Paul is saying that the church in Corinth, in all its diversity, as a body of believers, is God's temple. It is not status that's important, 
but who they are because of what God has done. And God has chosen the path of weakness, not of strength. When he chose the cross, he chose the path of weakness. They are called to walk in that same path because they are in Christ. And being in Christ is to be in fellowship with one another, and that means being in sacrificial relationships with one another, including those that are different from you. They were boasting in their group. What is important, Paul says, is actually the way of weakness, not power, not status. The second problem that the Corinthians have is one of sin in their midst. Some of the Corinthians were using their freedom in Christ as an excuse to sin. And there was even boasting about the sin in their midst. Remember, freedom is a big issue for the Corinthians. But they were not understanding what freedom meant. Paul argues that sin in the church affects the whole body, the whole person, uh, the whole church, and no person is an island. He urges them to stop focusing on sin in, in the world, but from within themselves. As 1 Corinthians 5:12 says, "What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person among you. Here he quotes Deuteronomy, linking the church to what God wanted for the Jewish nation. And he also asks them to consider the effect of their sin, their own sin, on those outside the church. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Therefore, they are to glorify God in their bodies. Chapter 6, verse 20. The Corinthians are saying, I'm free to do anything. But God is saying, glorify God in your bodies. The third problem that the Corinthians had was to do with food. Should they or should they not eat the food offered to idols in the pagan temples? Again, freedom comes into it, but Paul points to a freedom that is restrained by love. The guiding principle is don't hurt another person's faith. Paul argues that greater than their right to eat is their responsibility to protect another person inside the church or outside the church. They are to empty themselves of themselves and their own freedom and their own rights because they are participants in the cross. Corinthians 10, 16-17 Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one life, loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Again, there is a sacrificial element to who they are individually for the sake of the wider body. In place of the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me, Paul coins another slogan, all things for the glory of God. The fourth problem that they had 
was to do with their gathered worship. It was chaotic. As Richard Hayes puts it, they saw themselves as virtuoso spiritual soloists, wrapped in their own experience. Women were breaking social norms. Some people, probably the rich, were eating all the food and getting drunk and humiliating those who had nothing to bring to the table. There was disorder in worship, with people seeking to put themselves forward. Paul seeks to bring, bring order back to their gatherings. That order must be governed by love. And so it's right in this middle of this section on gathered worship that we have 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Paul goes on to make it clear that everybody has a part, everybody together. No person is unworthy to participate, to participate in the body of Christ. Love must govern their church gatherings because they are the body of Christ. Corinthians 12, 27. Now you who are the body of Christ, you, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. He also says that there is one spirit that gives gifts to all. Worship is something the Corinthian church community was to do together. There is no spirit, spiritual soloists, sorry to the young man here who is obviously extremely talented, but what is required is a symphony, participation by everybody. The fifth problem that, and final problem that the Corinthians had has to do with the resurrection. Some in the church of Corinth were denying the resurrection of the body. It seems that they actually despised the thought of their bodies being re resurrected. The word they used was corpse, not a nice thought. Paul utterly refutes this idea of no resurrection, saying that Jesus' resurrection is central to the gospel and is the proof of the resurrection of their bodies. To pro proclaim the resurrection of Christ is to declare God's triumph over death. Their future hope is to be transformed, resurrected bodies, not an escape from their bodies. Therefore, what we do now is important. The resurrection of the body serves as a warning that they will be held accountable for what they do in their bodies and as a promise that their bodily labor is not meaningless but is significant. The resurrection is central to everything that God has done. It's God's victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but, but thanks to be to, God, be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already called them participants in Christ. Again he says, For in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. That is where their hope lies, 
in Christ. So in conclusion, the letter started with God's choice to take the path of weakness when Jesus was crucified. It ends with the triumph of what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for their future hope. At the heart of this letter, it is about what God has done and what God will do. His faithfulness, which is definitely not based on anything the Corinthians have done. For Paul declares that despite their division, they are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in their midst. Despite their tolerance of sin, Paul says they have been washed, they have been sanctified, they have been justified. Despite their selfish behavior around food, God says they are participants in the body of Christ. Despite their chaotic worship gatherings, they, as the body of Christ, have been given every spiritual gift. And despite their wrong beliefs about the resurrection, they are recipients of the victory of God, which is the resurrection through Jesus Christ. Sure, they had some growing up to do, but at the very beginning of Corinthians, Paul has this to say in chapter 1, verse 4 onwards, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Jesus Christ. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, our Lord. So at the very centre of this letter, it's all about God and what he has done. Bonhoeffer has this to say. Christian community is not an ideal we must realise. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. I think that's worth reading again. Christian community is not an ideal we must realise. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. It's all about God. And as a byline, the second point for the Corinthians was, it's not you, but you're. You're. It's not me, it's us. Throughout the letter, Paul seeks to take the me-me out of the Corinthian church and instill, instill into them the us. The problems that they have center on their failure to recognize and nourish their community life. Their us. Whether they were Jew or Greek, rich or poor, male or female, they had failed to nourish this community life as an expression of the gospel and its power. Individualism was rife with stating, status-seeking and personal freedom undermining community-mindedness. 
Paul urges them towards putting away such immature behaviours and to prioritise others in the community, to do everything in love. For they have the mind of Christ. Paul does not argue for Corinthian unity in the abstract, but in regard to the very specific problems which divided them. They were discovering what it meant to live as God's church in their place and time. It was not about my status, my freedom, my rights, not even about my group or my experience. It was about following the way of sacrificing, having the mind of Christ, and about participating in Christ. Ultimately, Paul says about the, uh, what the, sorry, start there again. But ultimately, it's about how the Corinthians fit into God's story. It's about the fact that it is God's story that they need to fit into. It's not about them, it's about him. It's not about us, Paul says. It is about what God has done, what Jesus has done, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we move forward, as we move forward here in Christchurch, and as a church family, exploring how we do church together in the, in the place that God has put us, how we live in God's story, how we improvise, let us remember that it is God's story. It is all about God and what he has done for us. It's not about what we can do for God, but how we can participate in God's story, how we can participate in Christ. And let us remember that it's not me, but it's us.